1 Thessalonians, of course, by the name of 2 Thessalonians, uh, to you as we look at this incredibly apropos and, and very fitting books of the Bible. These two books that are really almost one book. Some of the same themes that Paul dealt with in the first book, he's dealing with in his second letter to the Thessalonian Christians long ago in Greece. And we finished that first series, and now we've begun the second. And we pick up our scripture reading today in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5. Now, this starts another section, another new section that really goes all the way from 2.1 through 2.12. And so this week and next week, we'll be considering that larger portion. We're only considering the first five verses today, and we'll look at that uh, portion uh, that next week in our consideration. Here now, once again, the word of the living God. From 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? May God add the blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Let us pray. Father, once again, we know that we can only understand when you enable us to understand. Lord, we are naturally blind to spiritual truth. And so we ask not for just human aid today. But there's nothing this one who stands behind this lectern today can do to bring your truth home to our hearts and transform us and change us by it. That is your work, Father. That is your work, O Holy Spirit and Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask you to come and bless and attend your word. Father, help us today to receive that engrafted word once again with humility and meekness. And may it yield in us more and more the peaceable fruit of righteousness that pleases you. And we ask in this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You probably noticed the title this morning, Understanding the Times. 
Understand that the times in which one lives has always, always been significantly important. Just think for a moment about what the Old Testament says about an Israelite tribe by the name of Ishakar. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, it says the men of Ishakar were those who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Now, we need men and women of Ishakar in our world today all over the place, don't we? In our country, leading our country. We need these kind of people leading in our society that know the times and understand what we should do living in them. And the Apostle Paul, I would say, had that very same concern for his brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. He wanted them to understand the times in which they were living and what was afoot and what was going down in the plan and purpose of God so they could live wisely and have hope not only in the present world, but in the world to come. He wanted them to have wisdom and hope to live in the midst of the persecution in which they were suffering. That was where they were. They were already living amidst persecution after Paul was driven out by the persecuting Jews. They were living with that persecution. And he's writing once again to encourage them and to give them hope. And he tries to clarify some things for them. In verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2, Paul is seeking very specifically to correct doctrinal errors concerning eschatology, what we call the study of last things. That's what the word means, the study of last things. Paul is concerned to correct some eschatological errors that were being taught, written to, passed down to the Thessalonian Christians. And despite what he had told them, they were still getting wrong intel. They were getting error. They were getting mistaken understanding. And they were confused. And Paul is writing to try to bring corrective measures and to clarify that confusion. Now, let me say this up front. The letters to the Thessalonians, in those letters, the Apostle Paul, even though they're some of the earliest letters that he wrote, they perhaps deal with some of the most difficult and detailed subject matter. In other words, it may be an early book, and some of Paul's later writings reflect maybe a deeper and more elaborate and a more nuanced theology and more details even there. Yet this book early does still contain not only detailed information, but some things that are somewhat difficult to get a handle on and understand. So in one sense, we can cut the Thessalonians a little bit of a break, can't we? We can give them a little bit of room because if they were confused, we have people today in the church that are very confused about these things. There's all kinds of different interpretations, all kinds of ways in which these verses that we're going to be looking at this week and next week are viewed by Christians, well-meaning, godly, 
Christ-loving people, and yet they have very different perspectives, very different views about what this is, when it's happening, when it happened, when it's going to happen, what's, what it's all about, who is this guy, who is he not, who is, is it a person at all, all of those kind of questions. It is difficult to understand. Therefore, it bodes for us to be cautious and use humility as we approach this subject. We could be wrong. I could be wrong. Probably might be even in some of this material. But even if it is a little bit intrepidating, even if it is a little bit challenging on us, it stretches us, even if we're not exactly sure, it is still a revealed truth of the word of God. And we can't dodge it. We must try to deal with it as respectfully and as humbly as we can. It is a revealed truth and we must attempt to mine its riches. Because we need to understand this was not written to give us some some pie chart, some graph that we can put on the wall about how things are going to go at the end of the world. This was written to encourage the church in the first century and what they were facing and thereby in various ways to encourage the church in any time in which it lives. It was not a theological manuscript of what happens when and next. It was designed to encourage real Christians in a real life struggle in difficult days. But as Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us, what? The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to who? Us and our children. This is revealed. Even if it is mysterious, even if we're not sure, and maybe in some cases we may not have some of the knowledge that the first century church would have had. Matter of fact, I can guarantee you we don't in understanding this, but we will do our best. Now, you've heard of the three R's, right? Reading, writing, arithmetic. Not arithmetic, arithmetic. Got to be Southern. Reading, writing, arithmetic. Okay? That's the three R's. Well, Paul liked three R's too. And he uses three R's for our outline this passage. Here it is. Reject, recognize, remember. There's something he wants us to reject. There's something we need to recognize. And there is something important to remember. Let's look at those three in looking at this passage in the first five verses. First of all, Paul is calling for rejection of something. Notice again verses 1 and 2 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, Paul is is saying here, he's been talking in the last chapter about things. He talked about it in the first book. 
He talked very specifically about the whole, and he's talked about things that are at the end of all things, the redemption of our bodies, the resurrection of the body, and being gathered to be with the Lord forever. He's talked to all kinds, but he's also talked some specific detail about things that are happening, not just in eternity, are going to happen as we go into what we would think of as eternity, but in time of God's righteous judgments that come in time as well. And as Paul has been looking at this big picture, this grand subject of eschatology. Remember, eschatology is not just about things that are going to happen way off, way out in the future potentially. They are things that started happening with the first coming of Christ. There was an end of an age and things were being prophesied and things were being fulfilled that were fulfilled in that time. And there are things still yet to be fulfilled. So it's a long period of time. And there's a lot of different subject matter in that, in that. And that's where it often gets confusing. But Paul is on that grand theme. He's been talking about that great subject. And he's been sharing it with them. And he says, I want you now. You've heard what I've said about this great theme about the coming of the Lord. And about being gathered with him and these things. But I want you to understand something. One important aspect of this whole big eschatological ball of wax has been misconstrued and there has been confusion. You have been sold a bill of goods. You've been giving false teaching and wrong information and I want you to reject it. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul was warning his readers against believing the false teaching that was triggering all their fears. They were beginning to get really, really afraid. They were not only being persecuted, but they were thinking this thing may even get, start getting worse. This thing might really start coming completely apart. Apparently, they had heard teaching either coming from several sources from prophecy, somebody claiming to be a, a prophet speaking for God, or somebody giving them a report, supposedly that was from Paul or from Barnabas or somebody like that, or a letter, even a forged letter that had Paul's handwriting. It seems that might be a possibility that it, they thought they were getting a letter from Paul. So they were saying, okay, Paul said this. They were very confused. And Paul got wind of that, and he's writing to try to clarify that. And the result was they were wondering if somehow they may have missed the day of the Lord. Now, there is a question about what is that referring to here. There's a couple of possibilities. We're going to get into that more next week. But one possibility is, whoop, we missed it. It's already come. Or they could have been thinking, oh no, it has come and we're living in it. The day of judgment has come and the great judgment is going down and we are caught up in it and we think what we've been suffering is bad. It's going to get worse. They could have thought they were already being swallowed up somehow by the day of of the Lord and his judgment. Secondly, we need to recognize, Paul says, look at verses 3 and 4. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. The day of the Lord 
that's being referred to. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaim himself to be God. Now, Paul proceeds to warn his readers against being tricked, against being deceived. And he tells them they must recognize something very important. What is that? That they're supposed to recognize. They need to recognize that the day in the Lord won't come. It will not. It cannot come until two things happen. Now, we're not going into what those two things are in detail. We're going to look at that next week because they concern the same subject that's dealt with. But he's saying to them, listen, this, the day of the Lord will not come until these two things happen. The rebellion is the way some of your translations phrase it. It comes from the Greek word which, from which we get our word apology. Or, uh, uh, excuse me, not apology, uh, apostasy. Other translations speak of the falling away. New King, the King James uses that language. And some other translations speak of the apostasy. That's really the right word. This rebellion is a depost, an apostasy from the true faith. Departing from truth and embracing error. And he says the day of the Lord will not come until the rebellion or the apostasy comes, verse 3, and the revealing of the man of lawlessness, also called the son of destruction. Whoever that is, Paul is saying, look, the day of the Lord Make no mistake about it. There's no way it's getting here until both of those things happen. Number one and number two. Think of it like this. Imagine this conversation with the Apostle Paul. You're the Thessalonians. Okay? I'm the Apostle Paul. And you ask me, how can we be sure we didn't miss the day of the Lord? Or that we're not already in it now? Paul? says, well, have you seen the two signs? And you guys go, what signs? And Paul says, the great apostasy and the revelation of the man of lawlessness. You guys, the Thessalonians, you say, no, we hadn't seen anything like that. I mean, we're going through some pretty rough stuff, but we haven't seen anything like, that fits that description. And you know what Paul then says? Okay, you didn't miss it. You're not in it. You're either not in it or you didn't miss it, whichever way you interpret that to mean. You see, he's saying, look, I'm trying to comfort you. You've gotten all spun up and wound up and you've jumped to conclusions because you've listened to siren voices. You've listened not to the truth that I told you and gave you as an inspired apostle. You've let other things come in and cloud your thinking. 
Now, what about that figure called the man of lawlessness or the son of destruction? The one many people today refer to as the Antichrist. It's not my intention to try to identify the man of lawlessness described here in these verses. But we will jump into those deep waters and try to at least swim in them a little bit next week. So you have to come back, okay? That's the hook. Come on back next week. Now, here's what we can do, though, right now. In regard to what Paul is saying here, here's something very important, application. You know, one of the ways you can recognize false teaching and error that is dangerous, one of the clearest ways, it's not always by what it says. It's not always by what it seeks to affirm or tell you. That may seem very plaudible, very laudable, very um, appropriate, and may even have the ring of truth or some truth in it. It's often what is omitted. It's what you, they do not also teach you is where the danger comes in. The omission. Let me give you a couple of examples. By the way, do you, do you know the only, and this is a freebie here. Uh, this is just a, a quick borrow from parentheses from next week. Do you know the only place do you find the term Antichrist? You know where it's found? Not in Revelation. Not First Thessalonians. It's not in the Corinthians. It's not in any of other Paul's letters. It's only in the letters of John. Not the gospel, but the letters, the epistles of John. Only four occurrences, and they all four are in John. And I want you to listen to three of them and what it says about the Antichrist. Listen to this. And this is very, very practical. There's nothing mystical about this. In 1 John, it says, children, it's the last hour. And you've heard that Antichrist is coming, and now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. Then, and that's, that's 2.18. And then verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That is, the, the Antichrist he who denies the Father and the Son. Do you know what that is? That's a non-Trinitarian heresy. That's saying Jesus is not God because they come and deny both that they are not Father and Son. They are not part of the Trinity. It's an attack on the person and upon the Trinity itself. It is a denial in certain form of that. The next verse in verse chapter 3 or 4 verse 3 it says and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God this is the spirit of the antichrist here it is how do you know which you heard was coming and is now in the world now think back to what is said in that first verse and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. What does that mean? If you're not confessing and professing that Jesus is your only hope of seeing God and eternal life, then you are hoping in something else. And he said the Antichrist does not want you to, he says there's other ways. 
Oh, Jesus, he, he's one, but, but there's other ways. Go one of those other ways. They're better, they're easier, they're shorter. It is a denial of the absolute need, the absolute exclusive claims of the Savior. That's another thing that the spirit of Antichrist teaches. And then in verse, second chapter of John's letter, chapter 1, verse 7, second, second John 1, 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. You know what doctrines those are in church history? They are Gnosticism and asceticism. Basically, they deny the incarnation. Oh, Jesus is divine, but he's not really human. You see, all of these are things that Antichrist teaches. And they are omissions of things. Sometimes the blatant denial, but other times they are admitting, uh, omitting important truth. That's one of the ways you can recognize false teaching, teaching that is antichrist-like. Now, the fifth ver- the verse five, Paul has one other thing he wants us to note, and that is something to remember. Look at verse five. Do not, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Why does Paul tell them to remember? (laughs) Because they'd heard it before. This is not a mystery. This was not something new to them. They were with Paul and he told them. He's telling them that if they will just use their recall and remember what he said, this won't be so confusing. Though much of this subject may be difficult, folks, for you and me. Because why? We're not privy. Remember what Paul is talking about that he told them was in a face-to-face exchange. It's not written in Scripture. It's not in any of the epistles. So Paul gave them some information that we don't have necessarily. We might have it elsewhere in other Scriptures, but we don't know that it correlates with those Scriptures exactly. That was off the record, if you will, communication. But they had it, and they should remember it. And Paul says, recall that. And then this will make sense, what I'm telling you. For us, it's difficult because we weren't privy to those details that he shared with them in person. But they were there, and he's encouraging them to think this through logically. And again, remember, that was the purpose of why he was doing this. It was to encourage them. It was to fortify them and to strengthen their faith and their hope and their love in the service of the Lord and for each other. He wanted them to know that this is not, everything has not come. The worst has not come. They are under persecution, but it's not yet what they were fearing so much. And you see, my friends, this kind of understanding, this kind of practical pastoral purpose, I think if you, and I'll say more about this next week, but I think if you read this, this was something written to a folks in a particular point in time. You got to understand that. And what Paul was saying was not something, a lot of it was not about something that's going to happen millennia beyond them. 
It was something from which they could draw encouragement and hope in their time. It was specific to them. That has applications and implications for beyond. And there are stuff that is still about what's still to come. But a lot of it was trying to, this purpose of this epistle was to encourage them. This only makes sense, what I'm saying, if there was a real expectation that they might see these signs in their time frame. If they were, they were expecting to see it two millennium from now. They were expecting to see it in their time frame. Interestingly, 2 Thessalonians 2.6, which we're going to look at next week. Look at, what, look at what that says real quickly. And you know what is restraining him. This is about the man of lawlessness. Now, so that he may reveal he may be revealed in his time. Whoever this man of lawlessness is, his time is coming and he's already being restrained, not 2,000 years into the future. He's being restrained now while Paul was writing this. He already is on the scene, perhaps. Could be. Seems to be alluding to that. Also, 1 John 4, 3 that we just read Remember, it said, which you have talking about this Antichrist spirit, which you have heard was coming, and what? Now is in the world already. That's not 500 years from then. That was not 1,000, not 2,000, not three, four, five. It's already there. More about that next week. We will then consider the implications of this and other related matters of understanding the times. But here's what I want to leave you with today. I want you again to realize that undergirding everything Paul is saying here is the importance of receiving sound biblical preaching and teaching and being under it and submitting yourself to it. Letting it control your direction rather than your own instincts. Because there is so much confusion. There is so much cacophony out there. There are so many false voices. There are so, is so much error. And it comes in beautiful packages. It comes in profoundly gifted people. And it easily dilutes and dissuades the faithful from following Christ. Paul is saying in essence here in this whole context, he is saying, folks, get back to what I taught you. Get back to the word and you won't be confused. You won't be swept away. He talked about that in Ephesians. He warned about that in James, that all of this confusion is because you're listening to siren voices. Get back and stay in the book. You need Real truth from God, and that comes from his word. I want to close with this great uh, quote. I love this quote by Robert Kappen, uh, Captain. And uh, uh, this is a good plug for, by the way, the uh, 
500-year anniversary of the Reformation study we're going to be doing starting next week. Rick Malik and company are going to be doing in the Fellowship Hall. If you haven't been a part of Sunday school, come. This is not just about history. This is about a powerful theological truth that impacts and changes not only the world of that day, can change and impact your life as well. It's this truth, the truth of the Bible that was rediscovered in that time. Listen to this mighty powerful stuff. Quote, this is the stuff that will be the corrective, the antidote to the error that is so rampant in our day. The Reformation was a time when men went blind Staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace. You understand what 200-proof is? That's pure alcohol. No mixture, no, no additives, just straight 200 year, 1,500 year old, back to the time of the apostles, 200 proof grace. A bottle after bottle of pure distillate of scripture. One sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel after all those centuries is trying to lift yourself into heaven by Excuse me, the word of the gospel, dash, after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that you were saved and were home before you even started. Grace has to be drunk straight, no water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale. Neither goodness nor badness, nor the flowers that bloom in the spring of super spirituality could be allowed to enter that cellar, that case. Now, you can't dilute this stuff. It's here, and it's here only. Do you believe it? Do you receive it? Amen. Father, help us remember that whatever Paul was communicating to your children then, his brothers and sisters in Thessalonians, Though some of it's difficult for us, Father, we thank you that it's all again about staying rooted in your word. And Lord, taking your word straight without the delusions and the imperfections and the additives of our times and our culture. Father, help us to be wise in the way we apply it and live in our time in an understanding way of knowing what changes and what does not. Of knowing when is the time and when the time is not to take certain courses of action. Father, give us wisdom that we might live in hope and wisdom in our day and in the days ahead that you may give us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.